Same, same for you too. They'll hear. Great. Well, let's pray. Um, it's quite a passage we've got before us, and we need God's help. Um, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, how, how we thank you that our Saviour is living, that, he's, that he rose, that he reigns, and that he is for us. And uh, we, we pray that as we look at this bit of your word written so long ago, we pray that you would help us to, to understand it and see what it means for us today, see how it applies. Would you, would you help us? Would you open our eyes to see your truth? Would you open our eyes to see the Lord Jesus? Amen. Well, I want to start off by talking about death. And uh, there's a, there'll be a quote coming up on the screen. Um, here it is. This is um, from Ernest Becker, who wrote a book, The Denial of Death. The, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way, that it is the final destiny of man. Now, his book, uh, written in 1973, uh, widely regarded as one of the most influential in the 20th century. But what do you make of that quote? Is, is that true of, in your experience of the people that you come across day by day? Is that true of you in, in your own life? The fear of death haunting now, maybe you're thinking, well, hang on a minute. It's a bit dark talking about death, isn't it? This, we, we've just had a Thanksgiving, a dedication for, for Luke and Elliot. What's all this talk about death? Well, you're right. And it's totally understandable as well. Because culturally, we never really talk about death. It's one of the big taboos. I was reading a survey that said eight, to t eight out of ten people in the UK never talk about it. And a third of people don't even have a will. Um, be that as it may, 78% of statistics are made up on the spot. So, <laughs> But I think there's something in his book and what he was trying to, to get at. Culturally, I think especially so in the West, we do our utmost to deny death, to downplay it, to, to try and avoid it if we can, because we're terrified of death. Now, two weeks ago, um, G at the back there was playing the piano. He, he was preaching on the, on the first bit of this chapter, and, and he mentioned the huge sums of money that are being poured into seeking to eradicate death. That's something that big tech in California is increasingly getting behind, trying to find an answer for the problem of death. Culturally, we, we deny it because we're terrified of it, because we can't deal with the reality of it. But what if it's possible to have a joyful expectation of the future based on true events in the past that change everything about our present? That's the, the claim of, of the Christian gospel, the Christian message. 
There's a, there's a short course called Hope Explored, um, which some of us in this room have, have actually done. And, and this phrase is what we come back to again and again in that course. What if it's possible to have a joyful expectation of the future based on true events in the past that change everything about our, our present? That's the, the claim of the Bible. And that's what's central to what Paul's writing about here in this chapter too. So let me encourage you, if, if you wouldn't call yourself a, a Christian here this morning, that's the claim that I would, I would urge you to, to explore, to look into. In this chapter, Paul sets out the basis for the future hope that we have and how that changes everything for us now. He's not just speaking about um, life after death, but life before death too. Not just pie in the sky when we die, but steak on the plate while we wait. Is what as Christians we believe. So in this chapter, Paul is, is focusing in on the resurrection. And he's going to show the crucial importance of the resurrection. He's going to show the future hope that we have. And he's going to look at the present purpose that, um, that the resurrection brings us. So first of all, in verses 12 to 19, Paul sets out why the resurrection is so crucially, crucially important. Now, if you've been here Sunday by Sunday as we've gone through this, this letter of Paul to the church in Corinth, one of the things that we've noticed as we've gone through is, is how this letter has a series of responses to particular questions and particular issues that, that are arising in, in the church. So at various points through this letter, Paul says things like, I hear there are divisions among you. And so writes to address that. Now about food sacrificed to idols. And he addresses that question. A man has his father's wife. He addresses that question. And, and so on and so on. Now this chapter is slightly different to that because it's not until we get to verse 12, the start of our reading today, that we get to the issue that he's wanting to deal with. And it's a biggie. Have a look with me at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. If it is preached that Christ has has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It seems that some of those in Corinth don't believe in, in the resurrection of the dead. Now, in, in classical Greek culture, people may well have believed that the soul was immortal, but not the body. So maybe for, for these guys in this church in Corinth who, who didn't have any time for the resurrection, maybe Jesus' resurrection, well, that was okay as a one-off. But the idea that, that bodies will be raised indestructible to live forever, in their minds, well, that was just a bit bonkers. In their minds, it's embarrassing, foolish perhaps, Maybe just a bit too Jewish for, for some of the Greeks there. And maybe, well, it doesn't really matter all that much, does it? So, so why don't we just drop it? Maybe you can kind of uh, get into to the way some of them may well have been thinking about this. Let's just drop it. Let's make 
faith a bit more accessible and, and, and plausible for the rest of the people living, living in Corinth. Well, how does that go down with Paul? In short, not well. He is fuming. And in verses 12 to 19, Paul spells out with logical reasoning how wrong they are to deny the resurrection. And actually what's at stake if you deny the resurrection? There's seven things that are lost, according to Paul, in in these verses 12 to 19. Seven huge implications if there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, verse 13, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ is still dead, then Paul's preaching, the rest of the apostles' preaching, is in vain, he says. It's empty, useless, redundant. The centre of the good news that they preached was Christ crucified and risen, raised back to life. If he's dead... Well, then preaching is useless. It's vain, he says, utterly useless. But more than that, not just preaching that's, that's vain, but our faith is, is in vain too. Christianity is nothing without a risen Lord Jesus. The whole of Christianity just falls apart, comes crashing to the ground. The cornerstone, if you like, at the centre of the building It's taken away and the whole thing falls to to rubble and ruin. Preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. And we are misrepresenting God, he says. Did you see that in verse 15? 1 Corinthians 15, 15. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, well, we're, we're misrepresenting God by telling everyone he's done something he hasn't done. And then in his final flourish in these, in these few verses, if Christ has not been raised, the Christian faith is utterly pointless. And we are still in our sins. There's no forgiveness. More than that, there's no hope for anyone who's already dead. And so we are to be pitied above all people, he says. So do you see how huge the stakes are for Paul? The resurrection is a crucially important truth. And truth matters. If Jesus hasn't been raised, our faith is utterly pointless we're wasting our time gathering in this strange school hall this morning and our our lives if we're devoting meaningful time amounts of time to it well it's just it's just a complete waste of time because we're left with a faith that is false empty hopeless pitiful but there's some There's some great big buts in the Bible, and this is one of them. But, in fact, Christ has been raised. Hallelujah. So this list of seven things that that aren't true if he didn't rise are gloriously true and wonderfully true because he did rise, because he lives. 
Paul's preaching, the apostles preaching, the apostles teaching, it is not in vain. Neither is our faith. We are not in our sins. Isn't that amazing? We are not in our sins. The price has been paid. It's done. It's it's dealt with. We are not in our sins. We have a hope for those who've, who've already died. And for ourselves. He, he smashed sin. He smashed death. There's a song that we like to sing with, with the kids. Super Saviour, it's called. Maybe if you're a regular, your eyes roll when you see the words come up on the screen. And you think, oh no, you're going to get me doing actions and things. But I love that song, so I make no apologies for it. It's, it's the brilliant words. It's such brilliant things to be reminding ourselves and, th- and thinking through. He's the death crusher. He's the sin smasher. Death couldn't hold him. Sin wasn't too strong. It's brilliant. I, I could get carried away, but we need to move on. So having set out the crucial importance of the resurrection, he goes on to, to show the future hope that we have because of it the future hope that we have because of the resurrection from verses 20 to 28. Now, when the Bible speaks of hope, especially the hope that we have if we're trusting in Jesus, it doesn't mean a sort of vague, wishful kind of way that we might use hope today. So in the, in, if you're a Man United supporter, I, I hope that they're going to qualify for the Champions League. It's not that sort of... Sorry, Bill, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. You get what I mean. There's a slim chance, but it's not going to happen, is it, really? I mean, that's, that's, the Bible doesn't, doesn't use hope in that way. The Bible uses hope to mean something that is concrete, something that is guaranteed, something that is certain. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. A sure, certain hope. That's what the Bible has in mind when it talks of hope. And that is exactly what's going on here in chapter 15. And Paul uses two ideas to convey the absolute certainty of the hope, the future hope that we have ahead of us. The first idea is this idea of first fruits. Have a look at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits, as as the name suggests, are the first fruits of the crop. In the Old Testament, um, the first fruits of of your crop as a a farmer were, were given up as an offering to the Lord. But they were also celebrated as they showed what was going to be coming. They were celebrated as a guarantee of of the rest of the crop, of the rest of the harvest that that was to come. Now, Mary and I have a a vine in our back garden. And um, frankly, we have no idea what to do with it or how to tend a vine. And up until about a week ago, Mary was convinced that we'd killed it. But the first fruits and shoots are are starting to, to come through. The rest is coming. The first, the, the first fruits are there, 
guaranteeing that something else is, is coming. But I wouldn't hold your breath from any, for any uh, homemade wine from, <laughs> from the guest household. But do you see what he's saying here? Jesus... Christ Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the offering to God. And he's the the guarantee that all of those who are united to him will be raised one day too. Because he smashed sin and death. We will burst into life after we die too. So that's the first idea, first fruits. The second idea is is that of Christ as our representative. Um, Sometimes theologians use a term called federal headship to to describe describe what's going on here in in verses uh, 21 and 22. Have a look at those with me. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So the idea for Paul here is, is that as, as human beings, we're united to, to Adam, the first human. He's a representative of, of all of us. But as Paul says here, through him, through Adam, the first man, came death and sin. And you can read all about that in, in Genesis chapter 3. He listened to the lie. He doubted God was good and had his best interests at heart. He rejected God's rightful rule as as his creator. He rebelled against his word and sin came into the world. And as you read through the story of the Bible, you see the serious consequences that 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 rejection of God, that rebellion against him, that uh, rebelling against his word, that, that that brought death and sin but Christ our representative head brought life brought forgiveness Jesus the first fruits and Jesus the the second Adam guaranteeing our resurrection bringing life and forgiveness do you see what Paul's saying here if you're united with Christ then these things are yours. Full and free forgiveness and eternal life with, with him forever. There's, a, there's an order and a certainty to it. Did you see how he describes that uh, in these verses? Have a look at verse 23. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Those who belong to him. If if you're trusting in Christ, you're united to him. You belong to him. Just as as he was raised, so we will be raised too. He, He reached down into the pit to lift us up. To, to save us from our sins. But more than that, he doesn't just lift us out of the pit. He lifts us up into heaven with him as well. Isn't that glorious? We don't walk through the valley of the shadow of death on our own. <coughs> Jesus Christ has, has walked it before and smashed through 
to the other side and, and he can take us through too. And that is the sure and certain hope that we have if we're trusting in him. That's the sure and certain hope that we have, that we are waiting for. We, we don't have it yet, but it's certain. Verses uh, 24 to 28, these incredible words portraying the majesty and the sovereignty of the risen Lord Jesus. He's living. He reigns. He's unstoppable. And he is for you. Isn't that amazing? He's living. He reigns. He's unstoppable. And he is for you. A big tech in California spending billions searching for the answer to the problem of death. Well, here it is for free in the Lord Jesus. This is the future hope that is guaranteed for us that we have if we're trusting on him. And it's not just platitudes, trite words. This is life-gripping truth. I want to uh, put a quote up on the screen from... Uh, an American pastor and writer called um, Tim Keller. He's in the midst of a second bout of of cancer, diagnosed a couple of years ago. Uh, I was listening to an interview with him fairly recently, and doctors are frankly surprised that he's doing as well as he is. Um, But a few months back, he he wrote an article in The the Atlantic, and uh, this quote jumped out at me as as I read that. Um, As death, the last enemy, became real to my heart, I realised that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or be discarded as useless. These truths that we're thinking about They're not just theoretical ideas. What's at stake is so important, isn't it? And there will be some of us in this room for whom the reality of death has become real. Our culture denies death as much as it can, downplays it as much as it can, tries to hide it as much as it can, But when it can't ignore it and the reality hits home, our culture despairs and has nowhere to go. Well, can I urge you to turn to the living Lord Jesus? Let these truths grip your heart. Let these truths give you a a future hope that is guaranteed, that nothing in this world can, can offer, compares to this so we've seen the central importance of the resurrection we've seen the future hope of the resurrection and finally let's think about the present purpose that uh, the, the truth of the resurrection gives us these truths this this future hope changes us now too 
I hope you'll indulge me in another football illustration for a moment. Um, Not about Man United this time. Um, I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of a Norwich City player. Some of you will know where, where this is going. So poor old Norwich City, your team is all but relegated. You're rock bottom, 21 points, few games left, but it's an impossible task. How are you going to face the next few games in this season? It's, it's over. It's done. It's, it's impossible. You, you'll be fighting a battle that was lost long ago. Now put yourselves in the shoes, or in the boots, I should say, of, of a Fulham player. Your team has been promoted to the Premier League already. Uh, next season. How are you going to be facing the next few games? Well, it's completely different, isn't it? There's no fear. Nothing can change your status. It's done. The battle is over. The war is, is won. Sure, there'll be some, some tough periods in the next few games and some uncomfortable moments, but none of that can change the fact that you're up. You're promoted. It's, it's done. Well, the, f- the, the, the fact of the resurrection, the guarantee of the future hope that we have, the certainty of it, changes everything for us now while we wait to. It's, it's guaranteed for us if we're trusting in Christ. And that's a total game changer. It changes us now. This future hope brings present purpose for us. I don't know if you um, picked up when, uh, when uh, Hannah read through this passage. Verse 29 is a bit of a weird one. Uh, now if there's no resurrection, what will, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? It's all a bit bizarre, isn't it? Now, Paul's not saying here that uh, baptizing the dead is something that we should be doing (laughs) far from it that would go against the the rest of his teaching in in this letter in 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 all of his other letters in in the new testament he's merely wanting to show the the logical inconsistency on on their part of baptizing the dead if you don't believe in the resurrection this isn't a practice that we see anywhere else in the new testament it's not something that we see in church history either um I think Mormons still do this kind of thing. But we don't need to get too caught up in it here. What I want us to see is how Paul points to his own life in these last few verses to to show the change the resurrection makes for him. Have a look, verse 30 to 32. And for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought while beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Because the resurrection is true, because Christ has been raised, well, he he said already, preaching is not in vain. Paul wants everyone to know this news. Paul wants everyone to, to know this future hope. He wants them, them to be gripped by these life-changing truths. And so he expels 
all his energy to preaching to anyone who will listen about it. His life purpose was radically changed when he encountered the risen Lord Jesus on that Damascus road. He was transformed from a a zealous persecutor of the church, a murderer of Christians, to someone who devoted his life to building the church instead. And he poured out his life to that end. Why would he bother if there is no resurrection? As he says, if there is no resurrection, verse 32, well, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, if, if, if this world is the here and now, if that's all there is, we might as well just get wasted. There's no, there's no point or purpose. There's no future ahead of us if there is no resurrection. But, verse 33, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses and stop sinning. Don't be fooled. He says to to the church in Corinth, don't be squeezed into the the mould of the world. Don't let the values and habits and and vices of, of this culture be what shapes you as you think about the future, as you live your lives day by day. Jesus told a story of a, of a man who, who had good land and had a bumper crop. And he thought to himself, where can I store all my grain? So he thought, well, I'll, I'll tear down my barn and I'll build bigger ones. And then... Uh, Uh, This is Luke 12 and verse 19 and 20. Then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? It's a powerful story, isn't it? from Jesus powerful challenge the claim of Christianity is that it's possible to have a joyful expectation of the future based on true events in the past that change everything about our present if you're not a a Christian here this morning can I urge you to to explore this claim for yourself and and really explore it One of the most unscientific things to do is to dismiss something out of hand without looking into the evidence yourself. Can I encourage you to to do that? Uh, Come and talk to me afterwards about um, Christianity Explored course um, starting soon. But if you are a Christian here this morning, well, how much does, does the truth of the resurrection shape your life? Shape your priorities. Are you shaped more by the culture around us than you are the, the glorious future that we have ahead of us? Someone on the outside looking in on your life, on my life, would, would they say, yes, by the decisions they're making, the, the way they spend their money, the way they use their time, the way they talk to their kids, the way they think about their career and their job and as we look at all of that yes they are someone who is clearly gripped by the truth of the resurrection or would they say 
perhaps a bit more of a verse 32. Just uh, eating, drinking and being merry for tomorrow we die. Well, we need to, 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 to finish up. So let's just um, remember again this, the, the glorious picture of the Lord Jesus we have here. He's living, he's reigning, he's unstoppable, and he is for us. Let's pray.